we were thinking about the resurrection. We're going right through from Genesis to Revelation, if you're uh, not quite on the page yet. And we finished the life of Jesus. And we saw when Jim came and preached just a fortnight ago, how the resurrection was not just new life for Jesus, but it meant new life for the disciples. It meant new life for the church. That whatever happened next was about the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. And uh, we pick up that verse that Jim brought to us about Jesus in his resurrected state, meeting with those fearful disciples locked away because they were scared stiff that the same thing might happen to them quite reasonably in my mind. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. There's at least three things that are true because of these verses. The first one is that Jesus is alive. Big cheer. Uh, That's pretty pathetic. Uh, At least some of you responded. Well done. Ten out of ten for having a go. Uh, uh, The second thing, though, and this is the most important thing for us to think about this morning, is that we are sent people. There is not a Christian that isn't sent. It doesn't make any sense to say that there's a Christian that isn't sent. We are the resurrected people. We are a sent people. And it was the sent people that got all the power. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that oh, in the history of the church, that it's the sent people that get the power? Have you noticed in our own day, it's the people that are willing to be sent that seem to have a special anointing, a special blessing? And so we're meant to be sent And the book of Acts tells the story about the early church being sent. Nigel, though I haven't listened to it yet, talked about how the plan was to go much bigger than just the Jews, to push out even onto the ends of the earth last week. And so we're thinking about that stage of the journey, and the main character through the rest of the book of Acts is a guy named Paul, called Saul originally, then he changed his name to Paul, and uh, most of Acts tells his story. And we'll follow his story uh, this week and next week. So we're picking it all up in Acts chapter 11. Bible's open in front of you. would be absolutely fantastic. And in view of what I said this morning, get out your phone, your Kindle, your PDA, your iPad, or any other mobile device on which you choose to read the Bible. And uh, let's get to work. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was miraculously rescued, saved, born again, renewed by the Spirit, all the whatever you want to talk about it, converted in a dramatic way on the road. Then he spends 10 years getting ready. Now, if God needed 10 years on Paul, he needs to get work quickly on me. And a little bit on you too. Okay, so let's get to work with what God needs to do in us to make us useful. We're not going to pause there. We're 10 years later, and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 11 and verse 22. But we pick up the story, not with a man named Paul yet, but with a man named Barnabas. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Verse 24, Now this is what I'd like people to say about me, and maybe you too. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's not bad, by anybody's standards. 
We think of Barnabas as the encourager, and he was, but this is the real deal, isn't it? He's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of faith, and a great number of people were being brought to the Lord. How brilliant is that? But Barnabas knew the secret that I've been quite slow, I think, to learn, that he not only needed to fulfill his own ministry, the calling that God had placed on his life, but he also needed to pass it on. He not only needed to do what God was asking him to do, but he needed to pass on what God had given him so that other people could continue to do what he was doing. In fact, maybe go further than he would be able to go. The succession, the passing on, the apprenticeship, the discipleship that we've been thinking about and talking about. It's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just do the work that God had called him to. Hang with me for a moment. He also passed that work on to a group of 12 guys, true? So that they could carry on the work. The work that God had for Jesus was to do the work that God had specifically for Jesus to do and the work of passing it on. So for three years, Jesus spent about 18 months doing the preaching healing stuff that we read about and he spent about 18 months with his disciples there or thereabouts. So he spent at least as much time passing it on as he did doing the stuff himself. And those 12 men that he invested in, he taught to invest in more people, because he sent out the 72, which is a multiple of 12. And so this cascading investment, so that what started with Jesus became 72, and on it went. It doesn't matter how good we are at the ministry God's called us to, if at the end we've not passed it on, it comes to an end. That's not what God's asking of us, is it? We will not grow, we will not gain momentum if we just do what God's asking us and don't somehow apprentice, pass it on, we need to start reproducing followers. Reproducing is the key. Barnabas understood this principle of reproducing. And even though it was going brilliantly well for him where he was, even though through his ministry and his preaching, many were coming to faith, we read, and to be honest, it always starts with a Barnabas, Every great story starts with someone who saw potential in somebody else. We read at verse 25. Can you see it there? Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who was later to become Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas, who's in the lead spiritually, Barnabas, who's in the lead with maturity, Barnabas, who's further on in the faith, gathers this young disciple, Saul, who would become Paul, and pours his life into him for 12 months there in the church of Antioch. And they met together, and they taught, and great numbers of people, um, they taught great numbers of people, and it was there that the disciples were first called Christians. We all should be investing in someone. Jesus set it up that way, didn't he? He talks about us being sheep, and he talks about us being shepherds. We are to be both. There are people I need humanly to follow, who can feed into me, invest in me, give me what I need for the next part of the journey, and perhaps I'll say a bit more about that later on. But equally, I need to be a shepherd to others. Uh, And we're all called. So who are you investing in? If that's not too personal a question. Who are you apprenticing in the ways of Jesus? Who are you teaching to pray? 
Who are you encouraging and showing how to share faith with? Who are you teaching about reading the Bible? Whatever it might be. Who are you encouraging to live radically for Jesus? It took effort. Barnabas was probably quite happy with the Lord's blessing where he was. He had to go all the way to Tarsus. He had to bring back Saul. He had to pour his life into him, build this new relationship. In a sense, it was stopping Barnabas doing what he'd loved to do. But Barnabas knew the secret that reproducing is the key. And it'll take effort to invest in people. And you'll think you haven't got time to invest in people. And that's why we don't do it, because there is no time. And for as long as we believe that satanic lie, there will never be any time. So who are you investing in, which begs an even harder question? Brace yourself for the harder question. Who are you investing presupposes that there is enough spiritual capital in your life to be worth investing in somebody else? How much spiritual capital do you have to invest in someone else? Do you have something worth investing in someone else? Can you see how that keeps all of us on our toes? It's not good enough for me to drift along if I'm a Jesus follower. I have to have stuff in me that is worth investing in somebody else. Now, it's not a perfect model. There are no perfect models. But what Jesus is asking of us one to another is to be a living model. I don't wait till I'm perfect, but I'm a living model of what God has given me and I need to learn what it is to pass that on. And so do you. So not to forget how it all started. It all started with a Barnabas which also presupposes maybe an even harder question. That you're willing to allow somebody else to invest in you. That's not easy either, is it? Because it's a position of vulnerability. It's a position that says, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't got all the answers. I haven't got it made. And we know we haven't, but we like to pretend that we have. At least in our communication with other people. And so will I be vulnerable now? Paul is the best rabbi ever. He was trained by the top religious guys. He knew everything about anything. He could recite the whole of the Old Testament by heart. But he went with Barnabas, some young upstart, who was further in the faith, maybe. Well, young upstart, maybe. Definitely further in the faith. And Paul allowed himself to be a learner. And we'll say more about that maybe in a minute. You're getting worried about all those maybes in a minute, aren't you? I can tell. It's already five to one, so all bets on the clock are well off in my mind. <laughs> Reproducing is the key, which means I've got to have something worth passing on. I've got to be willing to pass it on. But in order to get something worth passing on, I've got to be willing to say, hey, I need people to invest in me. I do not have all the answers. Now, it's obvious to you that I don't have the answers. I need to catch up. And you do too. But we need people to invest in us. So... A missional church, and there's only 10 points this morning, needs, that's true, apprentices. That's what we need. We need these kind of relationships all over our church in order to become a missional people. We'll desperately, we cannot do this. I can come to church. I can come to the prayer meeting. I can give my tithe without being apprenticed in the way of Jesus. But if I'm going to become a missional 
dynamic, spirit-filled, full of faith person around which I'm gathering people that are discovering Jesus for themselves, I will need all the help I can get. And so will you. I'll need these relationships. And so will you. Okay, mission. Missional church. Uh, One needs apprenticeship. Two, just to show we're moving on, needs a strong or, if you like, ascending center. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about having a strong center and a strong edge? And how we needed both, one without the other, uh, wasn't going to cut it. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 12 talks about Peter, so we skip that for a moment. We go from the end of Acts chapter 11 right into Acts chapter 13, and we see a strong center. The Antioch church, why do I say that they're strong? Because while they were worshipping, they heard the Holy Spirit speak. A sign of spiritual maturity is that we hear Jesus speak. In fact, Jesus says, if you're following me, you will hear me speak. That's what he said in John chapter 10. The same uh, chapter as Susie was referring to earlier on. They will listen to my voice. That's going to be so important for us in these weeks, months, years ahead. That we learn what it is privately and corporately to listen to what the Spirit is saying. And it was a lesson that Paul needed to learn as we shall also see. So it's full of, fully alive, and they send off their two best people. You've got to have quite a lot of faith to send off your best people, haven't you? Okay, the two top guys, we'll send them off. We'll give our best to the work of God. It wasn't all fun. They met a sorcerer along the way who was kind of annoying, and in order to sort him out, the Lord made him temporarily blind. Quite an effective way of God getting your attention, it seems to be, in the book of Acts, uh, as Paul himself well knew. But focusing on the sorcerer makes us miss perhaps what's really going on with a person called Sergius Paulus. Can you see him in verse 7? Verse 7 of Acts chapter 13, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Luke is identifying this man, I believe, as a person of peace. A missional church needs a person of peace strategy. Now you may remember that we talked about this a few weeks ago. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Turn back to Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles just for a moment. And this is just a little sort of aside before we get back to the main uh, point. Okay, so Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the 72. And it's here that we learn about the person of peace. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord appointed 72, and he sent them out two by two going ahead of him. Verse 2, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Three, go. I'm sending out like lambs among wolves. That's not very encouraging, is it? Verse 4, do not take anything that you need. Let the Lord supply your needs. Verse 5, this is it. When you enter a house, what was the word? Oikos, household. So it wasn't two up, two down and a garage. It was the wider family. It would have been uh, servants, extended family, uncles, cousins, maybe business partners and so on. Uh, A group that would have lived together, been economically dependent on each other. When you go into a household, a network of relationships, this is really important. When you go into this network of relationships, first say, peace to this house, be a blessing. Six, if a man or a person of peace 
is there, your peace will rest on him. Look for the person in that network of relationships that is warm, welcoming, responding to you, interested in what you're about and who you are. Who's the person that gives you a welcome? If you find that person, stay, verse 7, in that household, in that network of relationships. If you don't find one, what do you do? Move on and... Okay, evangelism is not bashing people that don't want to be bashed. Evangelism should be enjoyable to you and enjoyable to them. Manifestly, for most of us, that's never been true. We feel awkward and they feel awkward and we're glad when it's over. And we rush back to church to tell everybody it doesn't work. That's why the person of peace is so important. So important. Now, why am I saying all that there? Well, look, Acts chapter 13, verse 7. I think. Remember who wrote Acts? Okay, same writer, the gospel. So if he spells out the strategy that Jesus gave his disciples, you'd expect him to illustrate it in his story later on, wouldn't you? So maybe he is, and we'll see this time and time again as we go through Acts chapter, uh, we go through these verses and chapters in, in Acts. So what happens next? There's this person of peace, this person that, 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 that shows a welcome, says to Paul and Barnabas, come, come, I want to hear more about this. Come and talk to me about the word of the Lord, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Then what happens next is really weird. Because they leave that place, uh, because they need to, and they move on, and they travel by boat to Adalia uh, today in modern-day Turkey. So they're over here on the right-hand side, Antioch, just written in the sea here. You can see my red there, maybe. Antioch there. And they sail by boat. They've gone to Cyprus here, which is where they've just met this person of peace. Now they take a boat, and they go to Perga on the coast uh, by there, which is a bustling, strategic town. And everything in you expects to read, Paul and Barnabas landed at Perga and started to preach the word of God there, but they don't. In fact, they leave Perga straight away, don't even stop there, and travel inland. In fact, we've got a closer up map here. Um, Where are we? Here, Perga. Travel inland up to another Antioch that is right up in the mountains. That involved a hundred miles walking through bandit country where robbers were commonplace, When Paul talked later about being attacked by robbers, many think he was talking about this particular journey. To go to a little place in comparison to Perga, what's that all about? Until you realize that in that place, in Antioch, was another guy, not Sergius Paulus, but Sergii Pauli, who was a relative part of the same oikos, the same household, the same network of relationships as this person that he'd met in Cyprus. What Paul is doing is following the relational lines of a household, of an oikos, of a network. And not surprisingly, uh, Luke wants to highlight this. And that person of peace becomes a doorway to mission in that whole area up in Antioch. Jesus did exactly the same thing, of course. He spotted a person of peace, Zacchaeus, up a tree, desperate to see Jesus. Out of all the crowd, who was the most desperate? Zacchaeus. Who was wanting to give Jesus a welcome? Zacchaeus. Jesus spots the person of peace and says, do you know what? Come into your house. And then what does it say at the end of Luke chapter, uh, wherever it is? Oh, we'll even find it here. Luke chapter 9. Today's salvation has come to this. 
House, what word's that? Oikos, household, networks. Okay, so what Jesus is saying is that I saw in Zacchaeus that he offered me a welcome and it became a doorway, a gateway into his whole household. Remember the woman at the well who stood around and talked to Jesus even though she'd gone to the well in the middle of the day in order not to see anybody because she was probably of a bit of a dubious moral background and didn't want to mix with the hoi polloi of the day. Jesus starts talking to her and she hangs on his words. She engages him with conversation. She becomes a person of peace. And so at the end of the story, what do we read? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. The person of peace became a gateway, a doorway into a whole network of people coming to faith. That could be quite exciting, couldn't it? So, let me illustrate this. Uh, a year or so ago, uh, I went down to uh, a church just outside uh, Watford that has about, I don't know, 15, 20 missional communities, say, uh, at a guess. And one of the missional communities was meeting in the town centre at Watford, reaching out to homeless people. And uh, I think I described this to you at the lifeboats day. So it's a bit like our open door, but every week, and they prayed for people, and, uh, and the people on the streets were coming to faith and so on. Very fascinating. One guy, and Rachel will remember him, uh, came bursting to us as soon as we went in the door. His name was George. He was like the life and soul of the community. You you know, there are people like that, aren't there? Uh, And as I got talking to the leaders, I said, how did this missional community come about? How come you middle-class, stuffy people, I didn't say that, I just implied that with much nicer language, but how come you stuffy middle-class people were able to reach this group of people in Watford? This is what they said. They said, we started doing this, and within just a couple of weeks, we met George. George very quickly became a Christian. George brought everybody else. Who's the person of peace? Who opened up the doorway for that whole network, that whole household of, that whole oikos of homeless people. So, many people are now coming to faith. We're at verse 42 of Acts chapter 13. I hope you've still got it open in front of you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's going really well, wouldn't you say? Trouble was brewing. Missional church has triumph and trouble. We may as well face it. Missional church has power and pain. Jesus told us to expect it. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. So verse 50 But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Then another verse reminding us that Paul is, uh, that Luke is illustrating that Paul's following the, the person of peace, the household mission strategy, because it says there in verse 51, so they did what? Shook the dust from the feet which is exactly what Jesus told them to do in protest against them, and went to Iconium, verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Can you notice that? The, the triumph and the trouble all in the same verse. The trouble, they're running, they're shaking the dust off their feet. The triumph, they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How weird is that? But that's the marriage that we need to learn 
to live with. The triumph will always be in the midst and around the trouble. And the power will always come, often in and through and around the pain as well. The biggest reason for not being missional is because we know that it causes us trouble. We instinctively know that. We instinctively know that if I share Jesus with someone, it's likely to cause me trouble. Either they'll be interested, and that'll give me trouble because I won't know what to say, or they won't be interested, and I'll feel stupid and silly and won't know whether I can look them in the eye ever again. When the gospel is lived and preached and declared and demonstrated, there are always those two responses. Some people will love it. Some people will loathe it. Some people will welcome you. Some people will hate you. Some people will uh, reward you and others will revile and react against you. In fact, Paul would say so much to the Corinthians. He says it's like we're the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. But to those who are perishing, we are the smell of You are not good news to everybody all of the time. And that's a hard place to be, isn't it? Can I let you into a secret? I like people to like me. Anyone understand that? Yeah? So I'm nervous about... Because what if they don't like me? So I'll do my best to fit in. Have you ever been anywhere where you've tried to fit in? Because I want them to like me. And we have to face up. There will be people that will like us and love us. And there will be people that will loathe us because of the name of Jesus. If someone was going to be liked, I think it would have been Jesus, don't you? But they didn't like him. And they nailed him to a cross. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the way of the cross? About being broken and poured out for the life of the world. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies and bears much fruit. I didn't dream that. That was here, wasn't it? Well, notice the fragrance. Fragrance was held in a jar. What do you have to do to get the fragrance out? Break the jar. The fragrance of Christ is spread by people that are willing to be broken and poured out. It is the way of, unless you take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciples. Paul knew about this. Almost everywhere he went, there was the triumph and the trouble. So they leave and go to Iconium. We're at the beginning of chapter 14. Look how it repeats itself. Uh, Chapter 14 of Acts. Sorry, we're back in Acts. Page numbers, for those of you that have lost the page. What's the page number, Acts chapter 14? Sorry? 1109. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. So here we go. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Big cheer. But the Jews who refused to believe, a big boo. See, it's happening all the time. Those two things will go hand in hand. So when we pray for someone and they don't get healed, we should not stop praying for someone. When we speak to someone about Jesus and they don't come to Christ, uh, not that they will the first time, but after a... We we don't give up because there will be people that will respond differently. That's normal. It's to be expected. You will get a right kicking from time to time for sharing Jesus. 
And you will know the utter thrill that because of you, someone will spend eternity in heaven. Because of you. That's the deal. You can't have either or. It is both. So there they go. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, even though the, 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 the Jews were stirring up um, uh, against them. They were speaking boldly. Verse 3, the Lord confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So you can even help people and heal them, and they'll still hate you. People of the city were divided. That's exactly what happens. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they tried to stone them, but they found out and they fled. Phew, just in time. Where they continued to preach the good news. They knew exactly what it was like to walk into trouble and to find the triumph. And just in case we hadn't got the message, they go on to Lystra, and the same thing happens again. And by verse 19, Paul is lying almost dead, having been stoned. Are you still in for following Jesus? If we want the triumph of the mission, we need to be honest about the trouble. The season God is calling us into will lead us into difficult waters. But you'll never walk alone. Jesus was very real about it. He said, look guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. No servant is greater than his master. If you think they kick me in, they're going to be nice to you. No, they kick me in, they'll kick you in as well. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, the ones that will respond, they will also respond to your teaching. Isn't that a triumph? So that some will kick you in, and others will welcome you with open arms. And you can be part of the story, the life-changing story of their lives. Our response to all of this, to be perfectly honest, uh, as ministers, as much as people, has been to create a really safe church. I don't, I don't need any of this, do you? Really. So we create this safe church where kind of the biggest trouble is, you know, someone's in my pew. Someone's in my pew! Look, look! We don't need any new people here. We didn't sing any of the songs I like again. You see, ships are safe in the harbour, but that's not what they were made for. The church is safe in the way that we've established it, but maybe it's not all that it was made for. Launching lifeboats is challenging and scary, and the seas are rough, and the storms are are, are intense, and the waves can sometimes be high, and we honour lifeboat crews because they were brave because they took the risk, because they said, I will forsake all else to save some people. I will be broken and poured out to rescue someone from the sea. That was the deal. That's what a lifeboat crew member signs up for. That's why we go, wow. That's why we like firefighters. And there are other reasons, ladies. But generally speaking, it's because they're brave. That's the deal. And when we sign up to Jesus, we're in danger of thinking we're signing up to what we've sometimes created as a cosy environment, and Jesus is asking of us something altogether different. If we start launching lifeboats, and I tell you, I'm so excited about the missional visions that God is placing in people's hearts around the place, we'll be creating trouble for ourselves. Hey, in a good way, in a good way, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You need fear no evil, for I am with you, even to the ends of the age. The Bible is very clear. The trouble will increase. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 onwards. We haven't got time to read it, but you can read it. It's Paul's summary about what being a missional church is like. I'll just read you a little bit. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death, not the life, the death of Jesus, so that his life may be revealed in our body. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. You can read that after lunch. I think it's really important that we get this. I don't mean to labor the point, and I understand that I am, because because let's be clear about what we need to do together. We need to step out of somewhere that's comfortable into somewhere that's less comfortable, but he's with us, everybody. And he breathes his spirit on us, and he says, my grace will be with you, and his power will be made known in all kinds of ways, because it's the sent ones that get the spirit. At least that's what I've noticed. Mission. Missional Church has uh, a learning culture. The first missionary journey is coming to an end, and they're thinking about heading home. But already there's some anxiety about some of the churches that uh, they've planted not being very strong. So they retrace their steps. You can see that in verse 21 to 23. They go back to the churches that they've planted sometimes only being there a very short time, in order to firstly strengthen the disciples and secondly to establish leaders or elders. In subsequent missionary journeys, Paul will do it differently. Sometimes we think the Apostle Paul knew everything when he started out. I want to show that over these four journeys, Paul developed in his understanding of what it meant to be on mission for God. And so in in the second journey... He takes a team with him and he leaves leaders in place as he goes. He will eventually realize that that's not quite the best way either. And next week we'll look at uh, how he does it in the third and arguably his fourth and final and most effective journey. The point is he was willing to learn. And we've got a lot to learn. And when Paul was there in Athens, I think it is, he goes to Thessalonica... Berea, this is chapter 17. Then he's in Athens. He's on his own in Athens. uh, uh, And he brilliantly contextualizes the gospel. No, I'm jumping ahead now. He brilliantly contextualizes the gospel in Athens. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what he does, as he's coming to the end of this first journey, is, is to reflect on how he needs to do it differently next time. And so when he goes on his second missionary journey, he takes Luke... Timothy, and he leaves Luke, for example, at Philippi. And so what he's doing, he's trying to build a culture that will become self-sustaining. But again, he's going to have to learn that he'll need to do a lot more in time. So he's adopting this position of being a learner. And uh, he talks a lot about that in his letters to the churches, about what learning means. The trouble with learning is it equals change, doesn't it? Uh, And he was willing to change each time to do it better. Is it hot in here or is it me? Uh, absolutely sweltering in here. Could someone just switch something for the next final 45 minutes? That'd be great. <laughs> It'd be a shame to spend those 45 minutes still so hot, wouldn't it? Yeah? Think how much better you'll feel when you've cooled down. <laughs> okay, verse 27 of Acts chapter 14. They come to the end of their first missionary journey. A big cheer. Yeah, a missional church uh, needs to celebrate. That's for sure. And uh, point seven, a missional church 
needs to know seasons of rest. So they celebrated, and in verse 28, they stayed there a long time with the disciples. The next big thing, chapter 15, was the Jerusalem Council. Um, We haven't got time to talk much about that, but that was about the gospel needing to go everywhere. And then they start off again after Paul and Barnabas fall out. Uh, The Bible doesn't uh, uh, in any way try and cover things up. They fell out and they went their separate ways. It was redeemable in God's agenda. Paul went one way. He again went back to the churches he'd planted. He's really anxious about these churches that he started. In fact, the churches he started on his first missionary journey turned out to be the weakest. No wonder he was keen to develop his strategy. But a missional church uh, needs to know uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 9 of Acts chapter 16. This is the second missionary journey. For, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept from the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They're not sure where to go. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. They don't know where to go. And then the Spirit speaks to them, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to us. So they figured that would be a good thing to do, so they went. There they met, interestingly enough, a person of peace whose name was Lydia. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One of those listening gave them a special welcome. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Can you see how she was ready? She was primed, uh, and the Lord moves in her heart. She becomes a Christian when she and the members of her household, here it is again, at Oikos, a network of relationships, were baptized. She invited them to her home, and that's what they did. You get more pain, they get thrown into prison. You get more power, they get released from prison. Verse 33, the jailer uh, releases them from prison and washes their wounds. Then immediately, and all his household was baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole oikos, household, family. So you get um, Lydia, who's the person of peace, opens up that network. You get the jailer, who's so amazed by the, the miracle of Paul and Silas, not just that they were freed, but that they didn't go. Uh, he becomes, he is the person of peace that becomes a gateway, a doorway into his network of relationships. And so the gospel moves on. They go to Thessalonica, what I was saying a moment ago, to Berea, to Athens. Great stuff in Athens. A missional church needs to be contextualized. No time to talk about that today, but we have to do that. We have to talk about the gospel story in a way that people can understand. He went to Athens, he said, these guys understand all about idols, even idols to a God they don't know. I'll start there. We need to start where people are, and we need to use language that people can understand. And all the language that we might love and be familiar with, sometimes we'll need to give way to language that people can understand. Not the truth, just the language that expresses exactly the same truth in a way people can understand. And then finally, missional church needs to raise up leaders. So important what happened to Paul in Athens and in Corinth. Because Paul realized while he was in Athens and then he goes to Corinth and he's waiting for his team to arrive. Remember the strategy? Have some team members, leave them behind. When he gets to Corinth, Jesus basically says to Paul, there's enough of my people already in the city, get on with the mission. Don't wait for your leaders, raise up leaders within Corinth to establish a church there. 
And for a man who in his first journey had gone 1,500 miles, mostly on foot, and the odd ship here and there, to stay a year and a half in one place must have been purgatory for him. But he stayed there because God was doing something new. When you get to an oikos, when you get to a household, stay. Could Paul establish an apprenticeship model of leadership that would mean that leaders indigenous to Corinth would rise up and carry on. If Paul could achieve that, then those leaders would rise up and they would create more followers and more leaders and more followers and more leaders. And instead of Paul going from place to place and adding to the church, he would in Corinth begin to create a movement that would become exponential. Writers of church growth talk about this being a key moment of the way Paul, the lights came on for Paul and he thought the growth that the Spirit wants is not just addition, but multiplication. And so he stays in Corinth to generate this apprenticeship model. Jesus took 12 guys for three years. Paul now takes some guys and he works with them through that year and a half period. And something new is starting, which will mean that his third and then his fourth journey are utterly astounding in their ability to reach for the kingdom of light. Good news? So Paul learned a lot along the way. And we've got to learn a lot along the way. I'll let you into a clue. We haven't got all the answers. But we have a God who is with us. And if we listen to him, and if we follow him, well, the resurrection's possible, isn't it? Every day. But for resurrection, you often need a death. And sometimes the death is what I most need so that my agenda, my ways, my wills can give way to the resurrected Jesus. Let's be quiet for a moment.